We live busy lives in a hectic world, so to take in every piece of information available in order to make a decision would be a long and laborious task. That is why our brains use heuristics, a mental shortcut that allows individuals to solve problems and make judgments quickly and efficiently. While these shortcuts allow us to save time, they can often trip us up, causing us to misinterpret information. And in today's episode, we will be looking at some of these heuristics. My name is Sam Breakgear, and you're listening to Brains Bite Back. In this episode, we are joined by Gillian Grover-Siever, a senior lecturer of psychology at Eastern Washington University and an active psychology YouTuber, to explore five heuristics that we face in our daily lives. Gillian breaks down representativeness and its relative, the base rate fallacy, availability, framing, anchoring, and the sunk cost fallacy. You will learn how AI may be impacted by the heuristics used by humans, why Gillian likes to demonstrate the anchoring bias with her students by asking how long the Mississippi River is, and why a 95% effective rate for condoms tricks our brain into thinking they are more effective than they really are. And before we kick off this episode, I just want to remind you, you can go to sociable.co to find all of our episodes and many articles on topics just like this. And don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. Jill, I'm super happy to have you on here because... I love heuristics. I am nuts about them. And as you can probably tell from the previous episode that I know you listened to about critical thinking, and for any of our listeners that have listened to other episodes, heuristics and biases come up again and again and again. And that is why I wanted to have you on today. So I was wondering if you could start us off by giving a brief description of yourself and your background in psychology, please. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. My name is Jillian Grover-Siever, and I go by Jill, and or my students oftentimes call me Dr. Jill. Um, I am a senior lecturer at Eastern Washington University, and I have my PhD in cognitive psychology with a minor in psycholinguistics. My research has mostly focused on decision-making and thinking and reasoning. Sometimes it has to do with topics such as sexual decision-making, so sometimes it's more interesting to uh, lay people than other times. Other times it's just merely whether intending to learn something actually causes you to remember things. Um, so sometimes it's boring and sometimes it's really exciting. Um, but those are the typical topics that I tend to do research on within the field of cognitive psychology. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I am really keen to get us started. You have five heuristics today that you're going to be discussing. Would you be able to tell us the first one, please? Give us a, a brief description if you can, and then maybe some examples to follow. Sure. So I thought we could start with the representativeness heuristic. Um, this was one of the early heuristics that was identified by Kahneman and Tversky back in 1973. They did a really comprehensive uh, article where they described several thinking errors that people make um, that are all really what we call shortcuts. Heuristics means shortcuts, rule of thumb kind of thinking. Um, they depend very heavily on experience. So when you're using a heuristic, you are sort of jumping into the problem sort of halfway in. You already sort of know what this problem must be and you use a lot of your experience, your guessing, um, your um, logic, to guess where this must be going and then solve the problem from there. 
This would be in com um, comparison to, to a more deliberate type of problem solving, which is called algorithms, where you, you know, step by step lay out the problem and you deal with each part of the problem one after the next. The great thing about algorithms is you almost always come to a correct conclusion as long as you've applied the rules correctly. The problem with algorithms is that they're very time consuming. And so most of us don't want to invest the kind of time it takes to actually apply an algorithm when we're going through our everyday life, making decisions about many things across the day. And so we use these heuristic devices that allow us to simplify the process. So I thought I'd start with representativeness heuristic because um, it's the tendency to estimate the likelihood of something based on how well it matches our prototype. So our prototype would be our best example of some category. So representativeness heuristic is us looking at an event or a person or something out in the world. And if it matches our expectations, then we assume that it's a really common event. We assume that it's very typical for the person who's displaying the behavior. Um, so if it represents our expectations, we assume it's common. So um, one of the things that Kahneman and Tversky used as an example is they gave a description of a person. I'll just shorten his, their description. Something like, let's say you met a person who has piercings and tattoos and spiky blue hair, and then you're supposed to judge what profession that person would have. And you're given a list of professions and you're asked to sort of rank, rank order the likelihood that this person holds that profession. Very consistently, they found that people would list a person with that description as a trapeze artist more often than they would list them as a farmer or a lawyer or a librarian. This kind of thinking is in fact the basis of stereotyping. And so it's one of those shortcuts that allows us to sort of make guesses about people and then we assume our guess is probably correct. And part of the reason why we assume our, our guess is probably correct is a lot of times we don't get any feedback about whether we were right or wrong. We pass someone on the street, we assess their appearance, we assume things about them, and then we move on with our life and we never know any, any different. And so in the case of the pierced, tattooed, and spiky blue-haired person, the participants would never know whether they were right or wrong, and they felt fine that it was more likely that the person was a trapeze artist than a farmer. Part of the reason why they make that mistake is because they forget about the base rate of those different professions in the actual community. I mean, how many trapeze artists are there? I'll even say in the whole world, right? There are not that many trapeze artists, whereas there are a lot of farmers. There are a lot of lawyers. So if they were thinking probabilistically, they would say, well, I don't care what the person looks like, they'd be more likely to be a farmer because there's way more farmers than there are anything else on this list. But instead, they don't think probabilistically. They forget about the base rate of that particular category and they go ahead and make their judgment based on appearances. And Kahneman and Tversky found that even if you give them a fake sample to think about, if you say to them, okay, I'm gonna describe somebody and they, they, there are 70% of the people from the sample that we drew, 70% of them are lawyers and 30% of them, 30 of them are engineers. And I'm going to give you a description of somebody and I want you to say whether you think that they're a lawyer or an engineer. And then they give a description that is very stereotypically engineering, like they have glasses or they have a pocket protector or, you know, just stereotypical descriptions of an engineer even though only 30% of that sample is, is engineers. They were just told that. 
they still say that they are that that person is probably an engineer because that person's description fits their expectation for an engineer. So these are the kinds of judgments that we make in everyday life all the time. People who think that they don't stereotype are people who don't stereotype the typical classes that get stereotyped. They stereotype people. Everybody does. Everybody uses the representativeness heuristic to allow them to guess things about people or to guess things about outcomes that are based on their own experience, their own expectations, that whatever stereotypes that they hold, whatever their expectations are. Yeah. I think the one thing as well about all of these, which I really like is the fact that we can all relate to them. Like even if we see other people doing it or seeing it ourselves in ourselves and our own judgments, they're all very relatable. And I think like, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I I'm definitely impacted by stereotypes and um, I try not to be, I try to be as like uh, objective as I can be, but I think we can all relate to that. And uh, I think that also shows with the whole 30% engineers and 70% lawyers situation. I think that shows that we're not the best at consuming data and then making judgments. We actually had an episode recently on smart cities and essentially one of the experts said that we will be able to design our cities based on the judgment and observations of artificial intelligence for traffic and other such things. And I'm really looking forward to that because to be honest, it's going to be so interesting to have AI, an algorithm, like judge and assess things rather than um, humans. And it's going to be interesting to see how the the contrast will be between the decisions made by humans versus uh, a city designed by AI. I know that's not yeah. exactly like um, uh, a strict example or a clear example, but I thought it it came to mind, especially when you were mentioning about yeah, our inability to really properly assess the data and information. We just go with what we see more or less. Well, keep in mind with AI, it only knows what its algorithm has been processing, but mm. it ultimately looks for the same kind of patterns that we look for. We are basically just AI that has had our own unique experiences within the world. And so the things that I expect to have happen are probably different from what you expect to have happen based on our own particular experiences. Um, and the AI would be trained using whatever experiences are fed into it. And mm. so that would mean it's going to project out the biases of whoever programmed it. So it's not going to be a perfect objective consumer of information. It's going to be like if, if it's told to weigh the probabilities you know, accurately, hopefully it'll do a little bit better than we do. But the thing about humans is we also learn from our experiences when we do get feedback. And so the reason why we tend to display these heuristics naturally is because we don't get a lot of feedback about whether our heuristic implementation was correct or not. Um, when we do get feedback, then we start to adjust. Now it's difficult. Um, Piaget said it would take us 20 experiences with contradictory informations, be, information before we would ever adjust our schemas. Um, schema is just a nice way of saying um, our worldview or our framework for how the world works. Um, so we would have to see like 20 consistent, you know, pierced, tattooed and spiky blue haired people who were lawyers before we started to realize, oh wait, it's probably not a, tra a trapeze artist, this one's probably a lawyer. Um, it would take us a lot of feedback to, to make that change. And it, same thing for AI, it would have to have that kind of same experience for it to ultimately realize, okay, what I, what I was starting to think was true about the world is not true, and I have to adjust my computations to fit the world. So it's not, 
it's not that different how AI works versus how humans work. We're just sort of natural AI. I guess, how can you be natural AI? <laughs> AI that original. Work. A- organic AI. <laughs> organic AI, thank you. I think, yeah, you're absolutely um, right. And we've definitely seen that in uh, many cases. The one positive thing that came from that Smart Cities episode, which, uh, which kind of stands out for me, is they were discussing how AI would be able to make observations. So we were talking specifically about traffic and transportation. Mm-hmm. So AI would observe what cars are going where, at what times, how they're moving. Uh, so in that sense, it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, technically, it would be humans feeding the data, considering humans are in well, potentially humans would be in the car driving. Maybe the cars would be driving themselves by then. And then the AI would all be linked up. I don't know. It gets complicated. But the, the, but the interesting thing was that, um, yeah, it would be based on the observation. So almost the movement of the vehicles. So, it, so it's kind of nice to know that like, no human is necessarily inputting data for this, but it would just literally be making observations and building upon that. But you're, you're absolutely right. And um, yeah, we're definitely facing that as an issue, I think, for our AI, uh, for our yeah, all areas of AI. Thing, for the traffic thing, I would like to throw in that one thing that the AI has over the human is that the AI is only going to be processing the traffic, whereas yeah. the human, it has thoughts in their head that might be distracting them. They maybe see something in the sky that distracts them that has nothing to do with traffic. But <laughs> so the the ai has that advantage over us that they're it, it's not going to get distracted like a human gets distracted yep and um on on that kind of note of distraction uh let's move on to <laughs> number two <laughs> oh, well, i apologize sorry. no Just, no I, no I, I, I really enjoyed this there's no limit to this i'm not i'm not putting a, like a time cap on i don't mean to well, be a, I didn't mention, but one of my passions in, I I have a seminar I do on this and everything is on distraction and how our attention gets pulled from what we intended to have focus. So sorry, I will always go down the distraction rabbit hole. That's Um, absolutely fine. Don't worry. So the next heuristic on the list would be the availability heuristic. And the simple definition of that would be, we estimate the likelihood of an event based on how easily it comes to mind. So, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, actually it was Tversky and Kahneman in this publication, they like to alternate their publication uh, credits. Um, They asked participants to state how likely it was that a word would begin with a particular letter versus having that letter in the third position. And they did it for several different words. I'll just use K K as an example. So they asked how likely is it that a word, any word in the, in, in a, Random, randomly selected English textbook, what is the likelihood that the word would start with the letter K? And what is the likelihood that the word would be, have K in the third position? Regardless of what letter they were judging, they tended to overestimate that the word would start with that letter. And they underestimated the likelihood that it would have K in the third position. So Kahneman and Tversky attempted to explain why that would happen. And, you know, a lot of people have tried to explain it for a while. Um, Why would you think that it's more likely that a letter would be in the first position than in the third position within an, any given English word. Well, think about how you would try and generate words that start with a particular letter versus how you would try and generate words that have that letter in the third position. So let's use K. You go through your list of words that you can think of that start with the letter K, kiss, kill, kite, kick. You start kind of running out of them but you have kind of a decent list. You can right off the, off the top of your head, think of five or maybe even 10 words that start with that letter. 
And then you start thinking about words that have K in the third position. And I've noticed with my students, they do the same thing I do. They get stuck in sort of a rhyming thing. So they're like, make, cake, lake, bake, and then they sort of run out. I don't know. I can't think of any more. I guess there's more that, that start with the letter K than have K in the third position. It's easier to think of words that start with a letter than it is to think of words that have that letter in the third position. Now, some poor sad graduate student had to sit there and go through the English dictionary to find out the actual you know, ratios in, in actual words. And what they found is that it's much more likely to have a letter in the third position than it is to have it in the first position. Um, in, with the case of the letter K, there were words like irk and other words that nobody ever thinks of when they're generating it independently. Um, there's also the issue of having that letter in the, in the third position. There's all sorts of suffixes you could put on words and that counts as more words. Long story short, if it's easier to think of, you think it's more common. And so it causes us to make poor decisions in our everyday lives as we say, um, we hear on the news that, an, that there was a plane crash. And then we say, well, I don't want to be in a plane crash, so I'm going to drive to my destination instead. And it's much more likely that a person would be killed in a car accident on the way to their destination than it is that they would be killed in a plane crash on the way to their destination. But the, again, with the inability to really look at probabilities, the person thinks, well, but I just, I just heard about a plane crash and like 300 people in one fell swoop were all killed in this plane crash. I hardly ever hear about car crashes on my way to this destination. I'm sure it's much safer for me to drive myself, right? And so they make that incorrect, that incorrect decision based on how easy it is to think of the case of a plane crash and how hard it is to think of a case of a, of a car crash. And in fact, I've had students justify, well, you know, you're, you're more likely to live through a car crash than you are to live through a plane crash. And I'm like, I don't know what the data is on that. I'm not sure that's true. The point is you're much less likely to be in a plane that crashes than you are to be in a car that crashes. So that's the point. But they were like still arguing the idea that their availability heuristic was probably correct. So um, that issue causes this, this heuristic tendency to makes us fear the wrong things. Uh, makes us think that, for example, you know, I, sorry, I'm stammering for a second because no I'm not worries. sure if I should take your time. Well, I'm not, not sure, sure if I should say this. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure if I should say this. So um, for example, I'm not sure what exactly in the U.S. our current today's death toll is as of today's date on coronavirus. But I can tell you that sepsis kills 270,000 Americans every year. Sepsis kills 2.9 million children under the ages of five all around the world every single year. But it's one of those things that nobody ever hears about. It's not a it's not a pandemic, it's not glamorous, it's not something that anybody ever thinks about. And so nobody worries about it. Nobody ever worries that their infected finger could turn into blood poisoning and kill them. They don't think about it. And so the fact is we fear the wrong stuff oftentimes because if it's easy to think of, if the news is talking about it, if an insurance agent has just called us to try to tell us that we need this kind of insurance, because this might happen to us, suddenly we become very aware of it. And suddenly it seems really likely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head and I absolutely agree with you. I think our perception of uh, what we fear because something's in the news versus what we fear like in everyday life. And I think your example is uh, perfect with that. And I, I completely agree with you with COVID and 
from my own experience here. So to give you some background, I live in Medellin in Colombia mm-hmm. and they are super responsive here. Like we had a um, really strict quarantine. We we're only allowed out like one day a week for, for like months. And, um, and it was like a designated day and like they we're going through all the processes of like spraying your hands, everything. Um, we've been super strict. However, they don't wear seatbelts here in taxis, like no taxis have seatbelts. So if you get into the back of a taxi, there's no seatbelts. And it drives me absolutely insane that they're so, so on edge and they've been so kind of strict, especially like when I compare what's happened in the UK, like comparing like our response here in Colombia versus in the UK, it's, it's insane compared to, to what's happened there. Yet they just don't have seatbelts and it's ridiculous. It drives me insane that like, uh, that they yeah they they just they respond to covid but they don't ever think about making seatbelts mandatory or even putting them in the vehicle really or having them available Uh, so i definitely feel that you're absolutely right and i've seen the same with terrorist attacks when people are fearful of terrorist attacks and it's like your chances of dying in a terrorist attack or even being anywhere near one is so slim but because we always see it on the news and it's always blown up out of proportion um yes it's yeah it's crazy so i definitely think you're absolutely right and um it's something that i have seen a lot of yeah and it's hard because we want to be logical thinkers i mean we i think we all want to think that we think about things logically but these uh these heuristic devices that allow us to sort of jump into the middle of the problem in order to do that we have to boost ourselves with information that we get from media sources or from our past experiences, which may not be a good representation of how in general the world works, right? Our previous experiences might be just this little narrow piece of how the world works. And so we are jumping into this current problem and trying to make assessments about it based on oftentimes faulty information, either incomplete because it's on, you know based on our own personal experience or faulty information because it's sometimes being fed to us on purpose so that we will literally think about these things more. And so we want to be logical, but we have sort of these, these things that work against us in, you know, in, in, you know, the environment, the information that's given to us or in the way that we naturally, our natural tendency. One of the things I like to tell my students is it's completely normal to think in a heuristic way. In our everyday life, it makes a lot of sense that we sort of just um, make decisions quickly. We, you know, if you bog down and think algorithmically, you can, you can get stuck and not decide things that need to be quickly decided. Um, so they are very uh, efficient, they're very adaptive, but they also can be you know, non-adaptive and they actually can cause us to have outcomes that are not desirable. So you know, it's a double-edged sword, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I love the point you made about the the media, just because I feel that one thing that has come up again and again in our conversations when it relates to technology, especially social media, is echo chambers. And Mm -hmm. I think that echo chambers that we live in, what we see on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever you spend your time online, you're going to be presented with certain information. And if you're presented with it enough, it's going to distort your opinion. Uh, and your your view and i think you're absolutely right uh, it doesn't necessarily have to just be the news uh, or a news channel blaring on about some kind of attack or some kind of disease but also just um fake news repeatedly telling you the wrong thing um yeah. to, that can distort your your perception of the world for sure yeah social media has uh, become those chain letters that we used to get back in the olden days where people <laughs> were 
passing things along that were not true. And it's the, you know, it's the basis of urban legends. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's beautiful, again, from a psychological perspective, how uh, addictive social media really is. Like to, to tell somebody that they need to just disconnect, they act like a person who is physically addicted to something. They're like, well, but I can't. All my friends are on it and I, I might miss something. And um, so in my particular family, since the pandemic started, we decided to, to all of us get off of social media of all sorts. So we do not look at any of those. Like one of the things that shocked me a lot is when I got off of Facebook and not one of my friend, my so-called friends on Facebook, like sent me a message to find out why suddenly I wasn't, you know, on there or liking their things. So obviously this is not an interaction that we're having on Facebook. Yeah. You know, your friends don't even notice if you're liking their stuff and they don't even notice that you're not posting anything anymore. And so, uh, you know, we all withdrew. And I got to tell you what, my uh, psychological state is a lot better during this pandemic than it was um, while I was still checking things on Facebook. So um, I'm not a Twitter person anyway, or an Instagram person, but that may be a sign of my age. But uh, so I just, you know, my family all got off and we all feel a lot better. It was, there was a week of sort of jonesing. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, checking good a feed. that's That's good to hear because, um, yeah, that's exactly as I would expect. And I got to say, even though I, I haven't gone cold turkey like yourself, I definitely, I feel that I've developed over time a, um, a healthier relationship, especially since doing this podcast and uh, all the work that I do, like relating to psychology and technology. It's made me very conscious of what a good or what um, healthy, I think really is the word, relationship of social media should look like. And um, so your next heuristic, okay. what you got for us, Jill? Moving it on. Okay, so the next uh, thinking error that I wanted to talk about doesn't actually have the word heuristic in it. Um, it is the last one I wanted to talk about having to do, coming from Kahneman and Diversky. And this actually, the, the previous two they had discovered in 1973 and had presented in 1973. In the 1980s, they started presenting research having to do with framing. And framing is how the problem is set up. So a person picks up a box of condoms and sees that, it's 95% effective and they think, wow, these condoms are going to work perfectly. And they forget about the fact that there's the 5% failure rate that is inherent in that statistic. And so they, the, the condom producers have framed it as 95% effective. These are great. And you forget, you go along with their framing and you forget to think about that 5% failure rate and be a little bit wary. So um, we ignore the, the other side. And so one of the things we were talking about the media, one of the things the media can do for us is it can frame the problem and it can tell us what we should be focusing on by, by its choice of stories or the context in which they present the information. And so it makes it difficult for the consumer to naturally think, well, what's the opposite of that? Like, okay, if it's 95% over here, what would the 5% be? Right. And so as a person who's consuming information, if you want to avoid the framing problem, you have to literally say to yourself, okay, so you're telling me this number, what would be the uh, antithesis of that number? Like what is the other part that they're not telling us about? And so that'll help you to think a little bit more clearly about, um, you know, statistics in particular. Oftentimes you will hear statistics on all sorts of different kinds of, you know, sociological kinds of things, right? Where you'll hear about, you know, teenage birth rates, or you'll, you'll hear about, um, you know, infection rates, or you'll hear these different things. And you always have to flip it. 
um, one of the things I've noticed in the, in the global pandemic is they tell us about cases, they tell us about deaths, they don't tell us about the rec recovery rates. Like if we have this many cases and we have this many deaths, that means all these other numbers are the people who have recovered, right? Mm -hmm. The other 99% of number is all recoveries. And so they focus in on, the other thing I've noticed is they like to give us raw numbers on the pandemic. They like to tell us that the US has this many cases. You know, France has this many cases. And they forget to take into account that the population of the United States is, what, 10 times the population of France. Um, they, you know, don't really give us any kind of context to allow us to really make an informed assessment of what those numbers really mean. They frame it in such a way that that raw number sounds horrific, and it is, but I mean, it makes it sound like that's all you should focus on. And then, you know, forgetting to tell you you about anything positive or anything that would put it into perspective i yeah i definitely remember we discussed this briefly uh this heuristic during the the thinking critically episode and i remember jonathan my guest he said about how i think it came, comes from the book that uh if you go to a classroom and you ask oh was gandhi not 106 when he died they'd say no or was he seven years old when he died to another class they'd say no but because of the the example that you've given you've kind of like set their expectations of like how old or how young Gandhi died you can see a difference in the the age that they predict when they are asked like how old was Gandhi when he died so that's the one that I really remember from that episode and I found that example to be incredibly interesting and I think you're your condoms example is a, a far better like real life application in that sense. And um, yeah, a scary reminder that no contraception is 100% safe. <laughs> That's unfortunately true. And actually the Gandhi example is an example of anchoring, which is the next thing that I was oh, going to talk about. Oh, you're absolutely right. My apologies. No, I got that's them. fine. Anyway, let's, um, yeah, let's, sorry to have spoiled the surprise. Yeah, and I hope I didn't take away an example <laughs> that you were going to use. No. All right. That was Go not ahead. my example. Okay, so my next example, now we're moving out of Kahneman and Tversky's actual research, and now we're moving into um, something very old. Um, somebody named Sharif and his colleagues in 1958 first introduced the idea of cognitive anchoring. Prior to that, in the 40s, um, perceptual psychologists had talked about anchoring with regard to perception, but with regard to cognitive anchoring, um, Sharif introduced this idea that previous information can be used to help us make a decision whether that information is actually related to the decision or not, right? When we are provided with some kind of anchor to sort of make our judgment around, we will use that anchor even if it turns out it has nothing to do with the actual judgment that we're making. Um, so for example, in my introductory psychology classes, so I pass out a little piece of paper and the students are asked, how long is the Mississippi River? And half of them are asked, is it longer or shorter than 500 miles. Half of them are asked, is it longer or shorter than 3000 miles? So they're all in the same classroom. They're all getting the same basic question, but one is given the anchor of 500 miles and one is given the anchor of 3000 miles. And what you find is a significantly longer estimate of the river's length in the group that was given the anchor of 3000 miles than you get from the group that was given the 500 mile anchor. So when you provide some kind, and, and it's really useful to have an anchor when you really don't know the answer. 
when I give that exercise, my students oftentimes say, I have no idea how long the Mississippi River is. And I have to reassure them that that's fine. That's part of the, that's part of the goal is that you, I wanted to ask you something that you don't know the outright answer to. So they're having to guess. And when you literally are guessing, you use whatever information is around to help you make that guess. And so that anchor helps you. Um, I have no idea how long it is, but you've asked me if it's longer or shorter than 500. So I'll say 750, right? I'm gonna, I know it's longer than 500, so I'll say 750. Um, when I'm given the anchor of 3,000, well, that sounds awfully long. I'll say 2,500, right? So they tend to say shorter on the 3,000 prompt. They say longer on the 500 prompt. Like they'll an their answer is it's longer, it's shorter. And that part's correct. But what they do is they tie their estimate to the anchor. And so the, this is one of the things that's really interesting about eyewitness testimony. You know, if the police officer says, was the suspect taller or shorter than six feet, the police officer has accidentally provided uh, an anchor. And particularly if they have a suspect in custody and they know that suspect is six feet tall, given an, uh, an anchor of six feet is going to encourage an eyewitness to provide information that implies that the person in custody might be the perpetrator. Um, so given an anchor, we will, we will cling to it and we will use it as information. So anchoring is tying your judgment to some piece of information, especially when you're in a situation of ambiguity, when you really aren't sure what the answer might be. I hope I'm not getting my heuristics muddled up here again, but I know that there's a very good study and I reckon you probably know the name of it. It's the one where people were asked to watch a video of a car crash and they all, one group was asked like how fast was the car traveling when it crashed into the other vehicle. And the other group was asked how fast was the car traveling when it hit or touched the other vehicle when it con came into contact with the other vehicle. And I think just changing the word crashed versus came into contact or touched drastically changed the speed that people assumed that the car was going at. And the group yeah. that asked, like, what speed was the car going when it crashed said, like, a speed way higher than the other group that were asked when it came in contact with the other vehicle. Yes, actually, that's, you're doing a good job of applying your psychological concepts because that is actually from research that's well outside this area of anchoring. And that wasn't exactly what she was attempting to, to, to show. But you're, you're tying those concepts together in a really yeah. sophisticated way. So good job. <laughs> I got this one right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, Elizabeth Loftus' research on eyewitness testimony. And she has really what that was trying to get at was how suggestible people are mm. when they really, they don't know. And unfortunately, what people will often do in, uh, in situations where these heuristics get invoked is that when they really don't know the answer, devices to help them to make a best guess about the answer. And so that's particularly concerning with eyewitness testimony because we don't need you guessing. <laughs> yeah. We need you to be making a, a judgment based on the evidence. So um, yeah, that's, that's a really good, you do, I, I don't know that Elizabeth Loftus would necessarily say, yes, they were anchoring on that, but I, I can see where you're making that um, connection. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I think this is the fifth and final one. Is that correct yes. you've got for us? The last thinking error I wanted to talk about comes from research in the 1970s by a researcher named Staw. And um, this is the sunk cost fallacy. This is probably one of my favorite heuristics because everybody can kind of laugh at themselves for having displayed it in the past. Um, it's where you continue to invest in the current situation because you've already invested so much. 
so for example, you're in a relationship and it really isn't working, but gosh darn it, you've been together for five years, you know, you got to keep trying. And it's like at some point, maybe you have to recognize that this is a lost cause and throw in the towel, but you feel like I've already put so much into it. Um, one that I displayed that's a really dumb example of the sunk cost fallacy is I started watching a movie. It was on TV full of commercials and it was a horrible movie, but I wanted to see how it ended. <laughs> it's like, well, I've already been watching it for an hour and a half. I only have you know, 20 more minutes. I'm just going to stick it out. And the truth is I should have turned it off. I've already wasted enough of my time, but I've already wasted this much time and I'm almost at the payoff. And just spoiler alert, it never got better. It was a stupid movie. I should have turned it off. What was the name in. of it? Just so I can avoid it. I don't you know? even know. It was something about golf and it was, <laughs> it was awful. People may have had this experience with an, with an old car. You'll put thousands of dollars into this old car thinking it's better than investing in a new car because, well, I already have this car and I already know how it runs and, you know, I already have it. And so that's the sunk cost fallacy. At some point, it's not worth having anymore if it's actually not serving your needs. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. And that's the one heuristic that you brought to the table today where I actually had an example in mind already. I actually recently moved apartment and everything here in Colombia takes a little bit longer than it should. Well, quite a, quite a bit longer. It's, it's all on a Colombian time, as we say. And uh, I was <laughs> trying to move house and I thought it would just take a, a month maybe to get the paperwork done and sorted and move. It ended up taking two and a half months. Um, and I was quite happy. My old place was okay. Like I was happy with it, but I liked my new place and I wanted to move into this new apartment, obviously. But the stressful process that I went through throughout those two and a half months of trying back and forth with paperwork and having issues and things not working, it stressed me out so much that I wanted to just say, you know what, forget it. It's not worth it. But I had invested so much time and energy and money in like the attempt to move and going through this process that I was like, there's no way I can give up on this now. Like I've put too much in for me to just turn around and say, you know what, I'll just stay where I am. Uh, fortunately, I moved and I'm very happy that I moved and I'm kind of glad that I invested uh, all that kind of time and energy because if I didn't, then I might have given up and I might have never moved. I was literally going through that process being like, I am going through the sunk cost fallacy right now and I know <laughs> I'm going for it, but I just have to keep on going. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that everyone yeah, The sunk cost fallacy where once you have uh, attained this, once you have made the choice, and this is probably true for all heuristics, but once you have made a choice, it is, you become more invested in that choice, right? So now that you have, you have moved, you have accomplished the task, and now you're really glad that you did it. This is the greatest place to live. And boy, it's way better than the old place I was. And that's our, uh, you know, it's a justification. You don't feel bad about the effort or, or whatever. And so it's like that ancillary to the sunk cost fallacy that, you know, imagine if you're in that bad relationship, you stuck together, you know, and got some counseling, and now it's the greatest relationship ever. And, and you might overinvest now because of this, the energy that you exhibited. And it did turn out in the, in the long run. I didn't have that experience with the movie I watched. Uh, the movie <laughs> I watched just kept getting worse. Um, 
it, and just FYI, it's not that movie that has Shia LaBeouf in it. That came out years after the story I'm telling. I don't even know what this movie was, and I have no idea why I started watching it. It was awful. I should have turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we live and we learn. We do. <laughs> Jill, if people are listening to this and uh, they want to keep in touch with you or follow you, I suppose social media is probably not the best place now. <laughs> but um, if they want to reach out or anything, um, what's their best way of doing that? I have a YouTube channel, Jill Seaver, and it contains uh, not only these kinds of cognitive things, but research methods, tips, industrial and organizational psychology lectures. I have all of my classes basically um, recorded and, and lectures there. So if, if they want to follow up with any more concepts, they can search my videos on Jill Seaver on YouTube. Fantastic. Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this one. Yes, me too. Thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brainspike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can follow us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Just search for Brain Spike Back and reach out to us if you've got anything to add or want to tell us what you'd like us to cover for future episodes at The Sociable. And go to sociable.co to find all our episodes and many other articles and topics just like this. We look forward to you joining us again. And until then, take care.